Perhaps we can go a little bit more deeply tonight into something that we began last night. Explore this notion of learning how to live. The art of living. If you read a lot of books on spiritual practice, this practice in particular, there are many beautiful models of how it unfolds. You do such and such practice, which perhaps leads to such and such kinds of experiences, sometimes graded, a series of experiences, uh, each one of which is more of an opening up than the one that went before it. Finally, a a big experience, a large explosion. It can be called enlightenment or God-realization. But often, as it's characterized in books, it seems rather static. That is, uh, somebody who's really interested in meditation is pursuing that. And so you come to more and more retreats and do more and more sitting at home so that you can move through this, these pathways and have these officially significant experiences. These experiences exist and the models are useful, but somehow life itself is much more than that. And for me personally, trying to grasp what it's all about and why I in particular do it, why, in effect, I'm encouraging you to do it. It includes that model of an unfolding and particular kinds of experiences which many human beings have had. So they may be universal. But it includes everything else in life as well. So it doesn't simplify things to the exclusion of all kinds of things that go on and that are useful and beautiful that come out of a life of awareness, of meditation. If you recall last night, what I was suggesting is that the art of living or learning how to live is not something that, it's not a a guidebook, you know, sort of a formula or recipe do the following things or eat the following way or get this many hours of sleep or how to relate to people. It's not so much a how-to-do-it manual. In fact, it's not really that that at all. And on this end, I see my job not so much telling you how to live at all, but encouraging you to find out how to live. It's a very different approach. Clearly, some of the things that I'm suggesting, it's on the borderline of of telling you how to live. It is being suggested that a life characterized by sensitivity and a willingness to learn is more valuable, is more fulfilling. I am saying that. But I hope I'm not filling in too much of the content so that there's some official profile, a Buddhist profile or whatever. And even the word path is used in a metaphorical way. It's a useful term as long as it doesn't become hardened into something misleading. 
this, the kind of learning that goes on has to do with our own life, how we live. And it's non-accumulative. Much of it is non-accumulative. That is, it's not like much of the learning that we've already done where you fill up spiral notebooks of information, which also has, a, has some value. Or you have an experience and then remember that and then live from that memory because you learned something. A lot of it is like that too. The kind that isn't as common, which perhaps we haven't had as much experience, although we've been doing it, perhaps not knowing it, is that you learn what you need to know in the moment and then it's obsolete. It's that kind of learning. And if you can really begin to taste that, it makes life spontaneous and very fresh and alive. We have heard it in other ways, not resting on your laurels and now the big word is don't get attached. I'd like to suggest a few examples, just situations that learning situations or the absence of them. And let's see where that goes. I don't know where it will go. A couple from the animal world. There's an example that's used here a lot by many teachers. It's a very old example uh, used in the Buddhist literature and Hindu, Hindu literature of monkeys that are used, uh, ways in which monkeys are captured. That is, the inside of coconuts is scooped out and a goodie is put inside the coconut. The coconut is tied to a tree. The monkey puts his or her hand into the coconut, grasps the sweet, and then, of course, because a fist is being made, can't get their hand out, at which point the hunters come. And what is always stressed is that, in a sense, this is a model of attachment and suffering in the stories. So it's used to illustrate this. The, the monkeys will be seeing the hunters come and often be desperate with fear and still not let go of the goody. And, of course, they're, they're then captured. I've always been more interested in the, what is often mentioned on the aside, that every now and then a monkey escapes. In other words, some of these monkeys figure out what's going on and they let go of the sweet and they run away and they're free. Both are valuable, of course. I mean, it's one story. That means something is learned. The monkey's learning something. Hmm, makes the connection. If I do this, something that's something not so good is on the horizon there. Another animal story with not such a happy ending also. In the Boston Globe some years ago, there was a story of a, a bear in a zoo. Uh, the zoo, the cage had certain specifications and the bear was pacing up and down in this rather small cage for many, many years. So many years that it had dug a rut in the cage. Was treated very poorly by the children who came to visit. Food was terrible, an absence of fresh water, etc. Some zookeepers from another zoo, a more enlightened zoo, saw this, bought the bear. This was in Austria. Transported the bear to this uh, totally different concept in 
in animals, animal in zoos, it was a ravine where the, all the animals played. And there were other bears. In the first zoo, it was the only bear, so it was isolated. Good food, fresh water, the animals were protected from the public. They brought the bear to this new home and he wouldn't leave. He wouldn't uh, depart from this conditioning. Or as he just kept the same paces going. Now the conditions had totally changed. There were no bars, much more freedom, other bears to play with. And the bear had so internalized that one lesson that he just kept acting out that same uh, home range, so to speak. They tried lighting fire under the bear. First of all, they had to use fire to get the bear out of the cage, uh, the cage where the bear was delivered, in which the bear was delivered. The story ended uh, after a period of about a year or a year and a half. They had still, uh, through trying to give the bear good food, all kinds of things, the bear never learned and to the end of this story, at any rate, kept pacing up and down in a mine cage. I mean, there were no more bars, and yet there may as well have been. The bear was unable to learn about what was happening in the present moment. A rather extreme story. A few more, just a few kinds of learning things that, to get us going. Very ordinary one. Sitting and sipping tea. This happened to me and it was very significant, oddly enough. Right here in the same dining room. And noticing that if I took a certain amount of tea and if it was a certain if it was a certain heat to it, that it didn't make it, it was not it didn't taste right. And if I had slightly less tea in my mouth and if I let it cool just slightly, it was perfect. Absolutely perfect. So the amount of the tea and the heat made contact with my mouth and there's something in us that knows a lot. And by paying attention, of course, this could never have happened outside of here, at least for me, at least then. But here we have the luxury of paying attention to trivia and all these tiny details that make up our life. And what I saw was that, and this is what I'm getting at the art of living, I'm taking, a, in a way, a rather inconsequential event. I mean, who cares? Okay, if you enjoy the tea, fine. But, but everything is like that. It has to do with quality, quantity and quality. And the learning comes out of ourselves as we live. It's not reading a book which says uh, the teaspoon should be three quarters filled and a certain heat, because it was only true for me that time. The next day it might not even have been true. Perhaps somewhat hotter or even more cold or a larger quantity of tea. Do you see what I'm saying? This is non-accumulative. It's in that moment seeing what is right and living that intelligence out. Not necessarily filing it away into a principle and then the next day repeating it mechanically as the bear did. Because a solution to one problem is not a solution to what seems to be the same problem the next day, or not even problem, situation. Okay, now let's move into 
more powerful situations, more uh, dramatic forms of learning, forms of learning that one could consider spiritual. Some of you may know that in the Zen literature is particularly rich. They have this uh, interest in codifying enlightenment experiences. Anytime anyone has had an enlightenment experience, they ask you to write it out, you know, kind of. So it's on record. They have a big archives of all these amazing variety of enlightenment experiences. Some of them have been published in English. And there's an oral tradition of it. Now, to what degree it's true, I don't know, but I can only give you what, I'm, what I've read and heard. And people have gotten enlightened. And take light, enlightenment here as an intensive form of learning, an intensive seeing at that moment the way things are. So powerful that the seeing itself is the change. See, we make a separation often between knowing and being. But as you go deeper in this, there's no separation. In other words, you, what you know and what you are are the same thing. When it, especially when it starts to have to do with character, with what we are as people. Then that which is learned, if it's only a, an outside principle, just knowledge, that's in the head. That isn't doesn't mean that we've changed at all. And so some of these deep insights, deep flashes of seeing the way this existence is, the significance of existence for each one of us, things that have taught people this have been a tile falling on the floor and making a sound, a cherry blossom from a flower falling to the ground. In other words, this happened to a person and they opened up. Someone getting their foot caught in a door Someone dying in a hospital and the very act of dying bringing forth deep, deep insight and enlightenment just before dying. Another one, I'll go into a little bit more detail, happened in Korea four or five hundred years ago, supposedly. A Korean Zen monk was in search of some extraordinary teacher who was in China. And so he made his way through, there was a war raging at the time, he made his way through the battlefield, risking his life and stopping here and stopping there. And finally, one night, quite exhausted, came to rest in a hut. It was pitch dark. He was very thirsty and he found a vessel with water. drank the water and it was extremely refreshing. Felt very good and went to sleep. In the morning, when it became light, he looked at what he had had the water from. It was probably rainwater. And it was a human skull. He immediately vomited and almost simultaneously attained enlightenment. <laughs> Let's give it the benefit of a doubt and assume it's true. Assuming that it's true, and if we could recreate it imaginatively in our own experience, here's this water, it's delicious. 
You go to sleep all comforted, satisfied. You wake up in the morning and you've already had the water and it's delicious. But now the mind sees that it was in a human skull. Thinking, memory, aversion, all the things that minds do. And suddenly that experience is recreated in retrospect into something that's appalling, awful, and yet something captured at that point that the jail is the mind. That this person had enjoyed the water and was freely drinking the water. And as soon as the mind made it into something else, it was totally transformed. It was not the same water, even though it was the same water. And so in throwing up and seeing this deep revulsion because of how the mind reconstructed that situation, it was on another level, a deeper learning of how we are imprisoned by our mind. If you see it that deeply, then the other side of it is seeing how we can be free. It's by seeing the limitations of mind. Okay, now, please don't go out and drink water from human skulls or drop tiles or what you can. I mean, or watch flowers, petals fall or whatever it is. All the endless kinds of examples because none of them are it. Moreover, remember that the people doing it were a certain kind of person. They were ripe. In other words, there's nothing in the dropping of a tile and the sound of it. There's nothing even necessarily in drinking water from a human skull that it follows that enlightenment comes from that. Or let's say a deep learning, a deep insight into the structure of reality. Because you can get the whole human race to repeat those things and nothing will happen. It's a combination of some manifestation of life, they're endless, and a tremendous ripeness, spiritual ripeness on the part of the person, whereas they were able to really learn and grasp that. Our practice, Vipassana meditation, as I see it coming to a place like this, in a way it's like the cage that the bear was in. For some of you, I know it is. We've talked. It's a a form of intentionally ripening in other words, you are submitting yourself here and in some ways you're suffering more than you would have if you'd not come here for this weekend. You could have been boating or swimming or having a picnic and do all kinds of lovely things, right? Instead, you know what you've been doing. And some of it is not very romantic or mystical. Okay, but the situation is designed to intensify in a way this maturing, this maturation process in us This isn't the only way to do it. It can come about through anything, really. But this is one way that humans have discovered where the learning process that's going on anyway, for all of us to some degree, can be intensified. And perhaps along certain lines. And I think ripening is as good a phrase as any for it. It's intentional ripening. Um, and it's not all fun. Okay, here, I mean, I'm very cognizant of the fact that many of you are very new to this practice. 
And lots of the questions and lots of the problems that have come up have had to do with feelings that you don't want to have. Mourning, anger, boredom, full range. I mean, it's come up a lot. And people feeling trapped by them. Okay, the intentional ripening, in a sense, is to bring us to these situations. But to help us be equipped to know what to do with them once they, they come up. I'll give you an example of how things may be if you keep doing this. See, I go to retreats too, you know, like you are, and sit. And I really look forward to them and I love them. It isn't all fun. But you get to the point, and I know this is a bit of a promise to... One of the functions of Dharma talks is to give you some encouragement so we can you know, finish up on five, at five o'clock tomorrow. My own experience, and certainly not limited to me, many have had this, is that at a certain point, you really begin to learn how to work with what comes up. In other words, if you keep meditating for another 10 or 15 years... It's not a guarantee that, there's no guarantee that unhappy things won't happen to you. I'm not sure that structure of that sentence is correct, but you know what I mean. You can meditate for, I don't know, 50 years. If you're human, problems come up. Something goes wrong with the body, people die, relationships end, we lose jobs, etc. There's some, something in life. Because you meditate, it doesn't mean that that won't happen. It does happen. The main difference is that we're equipped, in fact, so that bad situations become good situations because we turn that energy around and that's the the alchemy, a sense of it from last night. That is, when awareness can become really steady, what happens is these seemingly negative experiences, loneliness, boredom, insecurity, anger, you know, stuff that's probably come up for all of us at some point. There's energy trapped in those states. But sometimes some of them are called hindrances in the Buddhist language. Things that block clarity of mind, luminescence of mind that's possible for humans. And there's something about awareness that freeze that captive energy. And so, in a way, the more difficult the situation that you face, the more potential there is in it. The more beauty there is possible, the more love. I'll use a perhaps seemingly far-fetched analogy, which I found very inspiring last week. Some of my friends have to hear this again. The analogy being to Jesus being crucified. To cut and resurrection. In other words, coming to new life through crucifixion. Now, that's a very dramatic statement of a historical person, and I don't mean to be literal about it. What I'm suggesting is one message there, and certain language used by some Christian teachers, is that what happened there is that Jesus allowed himself to be handed over to his oppressors. No resistance. And the handing over was in the service of new life. So it's Jesus superimposed on the cross. You can't have one without the other. You know, I wish there were a shortcut, you know, that you, we didn't have to have painful knees and 
uh, anger and all the rest of it. I haven't found it. I've tried. I'm, you know, lazy by nature. And eventually, what has happened to me, and it's certainly not only me, perhaps you'll come to realize that there is no shortcut. Maybe the only shortcut is direct perception. Or it's to stop evading, avoiding, hiding, escaping, pretending, and start living a real life. Real life means in accordance with what's actually happening. Okay, what Jesus did was hand himself over, allow himself to be handed over to destructive forces. And in the process of that handing over, those forces were transformed and turned out to be powerless. And what came out of it was new life. Now, it's not that you have to believe the Jesus story or resurrection or anything of that sort. Take it as an analogy. That these states that come up, fear, very common, and, and many people who I spoke to today, that's really what was in back of it, fear. It's one of the main ones for us. It distorts everything in life. It keeps us from doing things we want to do. It poisons life. And most of us are adepts at not coming to grips with fear because we're so frightened, or we think we are. And so we have endless escape hatches and networks of compensation and delusion and it goes on and on. And the fear doesn't go away and we get exhausted and burnt out and all those words like that. So what the simple principle that's being suggested in Vipassana meditation practice is something like what Jesus did. Don't don't take me literally. is handing yourself over. In other words, you saw by some of the questions, you must have by now, how everyone is not wanting to feel certain things, resisting it, avoiding it. And what we're learning is something rather strange. You're feeling lonely? Great. What's loneliness about? And it's really bring an openness and a sensitivity to what we have labeled loneliness. Perhaps if we hand ourselves over to the loneliness, we can get to the bottom of it. Now, the handing over is not drowning in loneliness. That's what we're afraid of and perhaps that's what some of us are already doing. In the handing over, in the midst of the handing over, is awareness and sensitivity, is the willingness to learn. And it's that which transforms no matter what it is. Another example, just to show you how sometimes learning goes on in this strange work called meditation. One teacher I had used to be uh, very irritable. He said, when he, much of his life, he was very irritable whenever he was a little bit tired. If he, didn't have a, if he didn't have his eight hours sleep, he'd be really hard to be with and irritable. So on one retreat, what he would do is intentionally not get enough sleep so that he would become irritable and then he could meet it with awareness. Okay, now maybe you don't feel ready for that. There are enough problems in life without looking for trouble. But do you, do you get a sense of in other words, at a certain point, the awareness becomes strong enough so that you don't have to fear, you don't have to run away from anything. The problem is still there. But you're different. Or the awareness becomes like a laser beam. And it can, eyeball to eyeball, it can look at whatever is, is happening. And in that learning is the transformation. 
It's not trying to change yourself, really. And so, learning how to live, in this sense, is just living your life, but allowing the lessons which life continuously teaches us to be learned. Now, if you can catch this attitude, in a sense, it's sort of twisting everything around. Something that's negative is really positive in its potential to free energy and to teach. But, although the universe is endlessly teaching, tirelessly, from the, it never stops, the real question is, are we there to learn? If we are, it's a, an extraordinary university. This whole planet is a great university, a great school. If not, it's a jail, it's a prison. And then we try to get out of it through fantasy or through certain kinds of teachings that breed uh, ways of looking at life that perhaps are not very respectful of life, as it is. More examples, because I think these examples may help. And then I'd like to hear if you've learned anything today. A few years ago, I had decided to, at a retreat here, I was just going to sit in my room for mo- it was a three-month retreat. I'd come out to eat and take a walk once a day, but essentially have very little to do with people. In fact, I took many of my meals in my room. Before the retreat started, all of us who were gathered to do the retreat were, we had a day or so to be just be friendly and talk about what we were doing. And one person who had never done a three-month retreat asked me how I thought I would be using the time And I mentioned that, and I wanted to sit alone a lot, entirely. This person became somewhat unnerved and said, well, why would you want to do that? And I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something like, what would happen to you? What what do you think would happen to you if you sat alone this way? And the person immediately, without any need to reflect, said, oh, I would just be very frightened and lonely. And then that was my answer. I said, exactly, that's why I want to do it. Okay, now I've been practicing for quite a few years, so I'm not suggesting that you have to do anything like that, or in fact, any particular form. I don't know what's relevant for you. That was for me. So that once the practice, uh, once Dharma fever sets in, Let it all come. The, you know, in other words, the full catastrophe. It's going to come anyway. I mean, that's part of what life is. But now it's a totally different at- attitude. Because with, with Dharma fever, you realize that you have the resources to work with whatever comes up, including, most of all, the last one, death, which we're all practicing for. Whether you know it or not, it's a course on how to die. But if we advertise it, there'd be no one to come. <laughs> Although death is in now, have you noticed that a lot of... I've noticed that, you know, um, in my generation, whatever that means, there was no death, no one died. (laughs) People passed away or they moved on or something and uh, no one ever talked about it. Children were, you know, shuttled out of rooms and it was just wonderful. No one, it just never happened to anyone. And then there was a reaction to that uh, where everyone started to notice that, you know, the Corpses are all dressed up as if they're going to a Halloween party or something. And, and now it seems to me it's gone to the other extreme, where 
death is fantastic. I just can't wait to die because of all the incredible spiritual illumination and liberating myself and countless books pouring off the presses about how incredible it is to die and how wonderful it is to be around people who are dying. Now, I'm exaggerating a little, but somehow there's something in between those extremes. That isn't what my feeling that life is. Neither of them are really comfortable with death. Sounds like to me. So this practice is beginning to equip us all to have a mind that's steady, that's unwavering, and that the humdrum practice of being with the breath, and you know how many times your mind wanders? I know how many times. I mean, it's not like I've skipped that step. But if you do it, and do it, and do it, and do it, what tends to happen is the mind starts to become steadfast. It's not mysterious. It will happen if you, if you do it. That's why it's called a practice. And it won't happen if you don't do it. And so the coming back is not failure. The coming back is the practice. Breathe in, breathe out, wandering away. Come back. Come back. And after a while, it becomes smoother and easier. And after a while, you can hold your attention wherever you want it, or let's say certainly on the breath, for indefinite periods of time. But that in itself, it will give you some calm. You can go for hours. And maybe a job in the circus, you know, <laughs> to, to show how long you can stay with the breath. But it's not wisdom. And so the next step is taking that, whatever degree of steadiness you develop this weekend, it's taking that and bringing it into these aspects of life. Only now we're much more equipped to learn from whatever from whatever it is that happens to us. So we don't have to go in kind of backing in or huddling together as frightened. We can have a certain amount of confidence, a certain amount of real dignity. But where is that dignity going to come from? It has to come from facing the loneliness. Being thro- it's like riding a bronco, being thrown by it, getting lost in it, perhaps thinking of leaving this place, but not leaving, getting as far as your car and then turning around, coming back. And then, little by little, it's an art. It's, it's learning how to relate to these states that we just don't want to be there. But the fact is that they are there. Moreover, it's not limited to IMS, as we all know. We all know there are a lot of very difficult and trying situations before here and will be when we leave here. But it's the same principle. If we can take that sensitivity and that steadiness and allow it is a certain vulnerability that's necessary as well. A lot of words, humility, vulnerability, an openness and a willingness to allow life to touch us, to experience what happens to us intimately. That includes joy. I mean, it's being exaggerated a bit tonight. It's not to say that it's all suffering. It isn't. It includes learning how to be fully joyful when that happens. We have a hard time with that too. And so the learning goes on on what you might call a mundane level, eating a certain kind of food and noticing that it makes you drowsy. And so perhaps out of intelligence, slowly cutting back on that kind of food. Because 
Not because a diet book told you or some authority, because, but you've dug it out of your own life. Whereas you're seeing that you value clarity of mind, you eat a certain amount of food or a certain kind of food, and your mind becomes restless or becomes sleepy. And out of doing that, perhaps a few times, a correction factor comes in. Because we're incredibly intelligent, all of us. And by seeing the many ways in which we obscure this intelligence, and I don't mean that to be misunderstood as intellect, which is one form of intelligence, it's something much larger. Intelligence, is, and, it's not, and much of it is not verbal. It's not, for those of you who didn't do too well on the IQ and the graduate records, it's all right. That only taps a small part of what a human being is, very small. So things happen to us. We're disappointed. People leave us, either through death or relationships end, or we don't get jobs, etc. With this attitude, everything that happens has the potential to release self-discovery. It it takes us deeper. So it's not to deny perhaps mourning that we have to go through or even sadness, but now that energy is constructive. From this point of view, it's an interesting... um, those of you who have read some on Buddhism, this is a, to me an interesting way to, to, to look at a certain symbol in Buddhism. There is a, a deity called, well, it's a bodhisattva of compassion. It's called Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin. It's got many different names. Supposedly in the universe, there are beings, bodhisattvas, people dedicated to help other human beings who are constantly listening waiting for cries for help. Now, whether it's on uh, some level that we humans can't see with these eyes or persons, recognizably human, who, for one reason or another, that's how they function. And it's depicted often with many hands. Sometimes I think with, I remember, more than two eyes as well, but lots of arms and hands, suggesting that this bodhisattva is going to offer help in all kinds of ways. That's why there are many hands there to to offer this kind of help. And that's nice. But if you look at it from the point of view that, let's say, everything is learning, even so-called bad situations, that no matter what happens to you, if you have that attitude, that way of approach, then the planet is teeming with bodhisattvas. I mean, the person, your boss, who you hate, fantastic, he's... He's your guru. I mean, it's just bodhisattvas crawling out from under rocks and driving buses and wearing police uniforms and wherever you look. If you don't, then it's what we already see. It's what we're already experiencing. Okay, let me um, close this sense of learning with by linking it with something fundamental to Vipassana meditation, which I think is, can be very creative and practical for all of us in this room. As some of you know, a key principle in Buddhism is the understanding that everything is impermanent. Some of you are very new to Buddhism, and so you may not have heard this. And what is being suggested is that wherever you look, there's change. 
whether it's at whole civilizations or individuals or your mood or the neighborhood that you grew up in or today, that everything is endlessly changing, becoming something else. Whatever it is, it won't be that in a while, whether that while is a second or a year. And it's staggering when you take a look at how much change is going on. What the Buddha did was identify how central that was to suffering. It's a very obvious fact. Everyone recognizes it. It's by no means the property of the Buddha. And poems have been written about it. Philosophies erected about it. What was done in this case was a connection was made between this obvious principle that everything changes and something very practical to study that in your own mind and body. When we sit in meditation, do you remember the meditation instructions, the, the last ones that we had at, this afternoon, when it was suggested that no matter what it is you're looking at, that it's impermanent? An in-breath has a beginning and an end. A thought comes and goes. Some sensation in the body. Everything is changing. And I suggested in following the objects that come and go, See if you can't notice that process as well. Independent of content, that process is at work. Okay, if you stay with this practice more and more, you become at home with that. Because that's a large part of what's happening. Is things are appearing and disappearing on all levels, whether it's the body or the mind that you look at. But we're not too comfortable with that, and so we get stuck. So the mind changes, but we're holding on to something and we suffer. Or we're pushing things away and things have their own timetable. And so in a sense, we're out of step. Now, what I'd like to suggest is that an increasing sensitivity to this change, which you can study firsthand in your mind and body. In fact, if you don't study it in your own mind and in your own body, I don't think it has very much power. It's interesting intellectually. But the change comes from, in a sense, you being led up to this law and being shown it so many times that you finally get it. And already, see that? Yeah, changed. See that one? Yeah, gone. That one? Yeah, gone. That one? Right, gone. Gone. Finally, it just it takes over. In other words, you, you understand that even that which is knowing it is changing. It's just an ocean of, of this impermanence. And there are a lot of consequences to it. I'd just like to point out one or, one or so tonight. If you can be, that's learning. That's learning how to live. Because if you are living and there isn't this heightened sensitivity to this fact, which seems to be... No question about it. Everyone agrees that things are changing. It's a little bit like dancing to music and being totally at harmony with the music, perhaps with your partner, and you know how good that can feel when dancing is really happening. And then all that has to happen is somebody can change the song. It can still be the same kind of music. If you're dancing the same way, probably you're off. And it's not satisfying anymore. Because something has changed and you're using steps that haven't, like the bear. The bear is going around, it's, it's outdated. I mean, something has happened that's over with. But the bear has frozen it in the mind. Okay, more and more as we improve our ability to move with life as it moves, 
if you see it and if you feel that it's true, what you may find is that it becomes easier to live. Because this is so rampant, wherever you look, it's happening. Moreover, in our time period, it may be particularly relevant. Obviously, this teaching is 2,500 years old, and the essence is probably timeless, older than that. So it's always been a problem that times are changing. But it may be that in our particular time period, the intensity of change is quite something, where family systems are being torn to shreds, religious systems, political systems, economic systems. Science has shrunken the globe to, so that we're now just a global family. Things are, and the cha- it seems that change is just beginning. Okay, if you're the kind of person who keeps holding on, it's going to be very painful because this process doesn't care whether you approve of it or not. It's just going to keep happening. You can't pass a law. You know, you can't change this law. It's what it seems like. It just keeps happening. Put the other way is if we become more supple, more flexible, then we may be able to attune ourselves to the obvious changes that are ahead for us, all of us. Okay. I hope that this has given you a sense of how this practice can be used in a very full way. There's no part of your life that's exempt. Whatever it is you're doing, your job, relationship, if you bring this to it, it can be of some value. (coughs) Has anyone learned anything today? To not come to Dharma talks. Please don't be shy, because it'll be on behalf of everyone. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I can put it into words, but I'll give it a try. Good. Um, without boring you with personal details, the last, say, four years have been, you know, you name it, it's happened. Um, and I, I had been quite active in Zen at one point, but I cut that off, I cut off everything, and made my transition for a while. But... What I, I was in a state of terror coming here. I mean, I've been in therapy, working on the big thing. We're coming to the weekend, but uh, we're going back and picking up pieces. The whole nine yards. And what hit me, and I, I thought, really, what my big terror was, that I was going to sit here and go on a crying jag. That I was going to dredge up all this old pain and old misery, and you know, sit here and sob and blow snot bubbles and, you know, thoroughly disgrace myself. And what I found happened instead at some point this afternoon was, I've done it. I mean, all I had left was the fear of going through it. And I've been saying, no way out but through, and you know, sometimes we're going to do this stuff. So what I've done, I was like, I've already done it. There's nothing to go through, I did it. I was just hanging on to the concept or something. I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting. <laughs> but I'm okay. I mean, right now, life is sweet, and I guess it's going to continue to be. Okay, so you, <laughs> what did you learn? I hear you, and it's, that's, that's wonderful. What did you learn? Because include the whole thing that you went through. You really have already said well, it. I'm I think just it's, it's, yeah, it's like my, I was more afraid of what I was going to do than what I, I mean, I'm actually a very strong lady, if I'm right, right. And I did it, and I dealt with everything, and I guess I kept 
thinking there had to be more. Thinking. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it, definitely, my head trip. There had to be more because I couldn't possibly have achieved it, right? So is there some relationship between thinking and fear? Obviously. Right. (laughs) So if we understand thinking, what might happen? If we really start to examine thinking. Yes. It's so that you don't have to focus on the... Everyone's afraid of different things. I'm afraid of the dark, I'm afraid of the light, I'm afraid of height, but... Very often, the fear has, there's something in common, is that it's an anticipation that something's going to happen. And usually, very often, it doesn't happen. By the way, if it should turn out, see, because you don't know with this stuff, that you have to have crying jags with snot and all that stuff you described, uh, it's fine here. There's no etiquette here except, you know, no one impinging upon other people's person has been crying in this room many times. Not only that, those poor trees, what they've had to listen to over the last 10 years. So you can just go off into the woods, this is for anyone, and just wail at the moon. Because this is, you know, it's released, it's intense, intentionally ripening us. It's helping us to really ripen spiritually. That's why we're doing it. Thank you. Yeah, anyone else? Well, I've, I've been learning about pain. and pain in my back. And this last med- meditation, I began to relate to it as a friend because it was really an aid in focusing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which gave it a whole new twist. You want us to intensify that pain a little no. bit more? <laughs> <laughs> it was only momentary. Right. That, but, um, Short-lived friendship. Yeah. At least my mind wasn't one. Yes. Okay, but, but you were able to, in other words, the pain was there, and you were able to see, not make it a totally black and white kind of thing. Pain, bad. Pleasure, good. Some of it was a strategy. If I call it a friend, maybe it will go away. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else? These are all the things that make up our life, these small moments. Yes. I've been learning about my doubt, which is a new thing for me. My practice is not terribly extensive, but it's been going on for a couple of years. And kind of personally, recently I've fallen in love with a man who's a Western philosopher, back in Chinese philosophy. And his orientation is completely Western, completely material. He knows nothing about Eastern philosophy or religion and has no interest, but I love him. And I find in coming here that a lot of his skepticism and his thought mode completely permeates my practice. And I'm feeling all this doubt. Doubt of this practice. Yes. I find it very hard to explain to him. And I guess um, that's sort of the answer to the doubt that I'm feeling. I'm trying to find my way through that to continue my practice and care about him. Yes. Okay, so I just want to make sure that I understand you. So that you've learned that some of your doubt is really his doubt that you've taken on. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is that... But what, do you really doubt this? If you can separate yourself, it may be impossible at this point. No, not 
And you're here, right? So you must think it's fair. Yeah. What I trust most in what you said is that you love them. But again, you have to be careful because you don't want to deform yourself. Or as the love should be in the service of your growth as well as his. It means that you don't have to make him over. And also, I don't tend to see it so much as Oriental versus Western or any of that anymore. Just go to the Orient sometimes. You'll see they have as many problems as we do. Also, he can be very helpful. He can help keep you honest. I feel that. There's a lot of nonsense in spiritual circles. Rom- <laughs> romanticism and uh, superstition and uh, a lot. And if, he's, if he keeps you that, you know, if he questions you that way, it could be very helpful as long as you both respect each other. You don't have to be identical. But I mean, if you respect each other's right to be different, then it's, I don't see a problem. Can you share what you learned with him? That would be nice if you could. Not in the spirit of changing him. I hope to. Yeah. I hope to. Anyone else learn anything? It can be really... I, I would, something tiny. None of this character, spiritual. Something really ordinary. Yeah. I found just watching my thoughts that I was spending a lot of time hiding out, running away, uh, and realizing that I'm spend a lot of my inner energy a lot of the time uh, doing that. And that was clear just watching my thoughts and watching myself go into sleep and go into fantasies and, and realizing that I'm spending a lot of time doing that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, one, that's one thing I... Okay. In the, in the Buddhist tradition, one of the things, if you go on in this, you'll find there's one th- other thing that we will learn, we're not doing a whole lot of it this weekend, is the quality of investigation. Let's see if we can move with that. See, so you see that, you see that you're hiding out in fantasies, let's say. Now what? I mean, maybe you've already seen. Do you see why you're doing it and wh- what the cost is for you in terms of the quality of your life, etc.? You don't have to answer in you know, a public gathering, but do you see what I mean? I'm, I'm circling the edges of, of, of really looking in and seeing. Okay, you know, I'll peek over the wall and mm-hmm. drop it and fall back. Okay, maybe we should end with this. That's exactly, so often that's what happens. It's as if we're tied in knots. <coughs> we have these, each one of us is different ones, but we're tied in knots. Step number one is seeing that you're tied in a knot. I was seeing your predicament. That's very hard, but that's a very significant one. My God, I'm hiding. Then we start to work with it. We're not perfect. We start to loosen the knot a little bit. Just with awareness, with a bit of even intellectual understanding. Get hurt a few times. And then finally untie it and then can be free of it and have a certain kind of energy available that wasn't because we limited ourselves. And in a way, this practice is about untying all those knots. Let me, I'll, let's call it, I mean, it's time to do some walking. The Buddha at one point uh, took a handkerchief and held it up in front of the group of people, what is called the community of people, and kept tying the handkerchief into knots. And then he asked them, well, what have I done? I said, well, you've tied that into many knots. I said, good. And then he started to untie them. He said, now what have I done? He said, you're untying all the knots. He said, exactly. In other words, we have put ourselves in this situation. And with a little care and attention, 
sometimes swallowing hard, a good cry now and then, a trip into the woods once in a while. It can be unfolded. Now, it's not in the spirit of getting somewhere. The process of learning is itself tremendously fulfilling and gives tremendous energy. The momentum picks up as you begin to see how you can learn, how you can be your own teacher and your own student. You're the teacher and the student. In any of these things, as you start, oh, that's right. And energy comes from that. There's a certain inspired quality that comes from that. You have more energy to do more, to go deeper. And it's natural. It's joyful. Learning is joyful. Okay. Back to the trenches. A little walking meditation for change. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.